0: I'm Kelly Coffey, CEO of City National Bank. Our conversations podcast features in depth interviews with innovative leaders from business, entertainment, and nonprofits. Listen and learn how to succeed in what I'm calling the next normal. Now is the time to rethink, reinvent, and renew yourself and your business. Hello, everyone. I'm so excited to kick off a new season of our podcast conversations. We have an extraordinary guest joining us today. This woman is a mom, nonprofit leader, activist, advocate, and a model. She's the founder of Every Mother Counts and has worked tirelessly to provide equitable access to maternal health care for women around the world. This past April, she joined New York's Maternity Task Force, advocating for expectant mothers during the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm really looking forward to our conversation today, and it is my privilege to welcome Christy Turlington Burns. Christy, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to be with you. Thanks so much, Kelly. It's great to be with you. So, you know, as we navigate 2021, we were all so excited to welcome the new year and and the road ahead. I've been thinking a lot about the concept of renewal, reinvention, And to many, you're regarded as one of the most successful supermodels in American culture, for sure. However, you've gone through your own periods of reinvention as a mother, as a businesswoman. So tell us about that journey and how you've come to be where you are today. Wow, Um,
1: I mean, I feel like, you know, in so many ways, I've really been inspired by women who I guess have reinvented themselves. And I think have taken in those examples, you know, a life ideally is a long and healthy one. And so this idea of not being, you know, not being limited to exploring different facets of ourselves, um, continuing to learn and to be educated and to, take on new challenges. To me, I don't know, I guess that that sort of is what interests me. And and I'm a curious person. And I really liked being able to take that freedom and that step back to explore different paths. And sometimes they're short ones, and sometimes they're longer ones, but you know, just not not being afraid to take risks, I suppose. And so yeah, I guess my life has been a series of those kinds of choices, really finding that one opportunity has opened doors to more opportunities and trying to open as many of those as possible, you know, without depleting all of my energy, of course. But yeah,
0: that's what keeps me engaged and keeps me excited. I think that's new things always. You've done so many interesting things. We're going to get into all that. But let's just talk first about this year, because this, you know, so many people have experienced change in their lives over the past year. I think just about everyone. And some of the changes have been difficult just to say the least, but I'm interested over the course of the pandemic, how did you navigate change and what are some of the things that you maybe want to continue to do differently post COVID as we go back to what I'm calling the next normal, whatever that is. I like that.
1: Gosh, I think as I was just even hearing myself speak before, I think I really love change and I seek change in my daily life. In in a strange way, this last year has actually... Kind of forced me to not. I I don't travel as much as I typically would, which is what usually brings me so much energy and kind of motivates me in my work with Every Mother Counts in particular. But I think I really had to quickly embrace just being present. I've always talked about the importance of being present. I've had a decades-long yoga practice, and I think a spiritual practice that really speaks to that. But it always surprises me how it comes up constantly as the thing that I really need to continue to work on, right? Just to be here now. And so I kind of surrendered pretty early on to, you know, there was so many things that were out of my control, out of our control. And so to do whatever those things were to to keep myself feeling healthy, to be as present as I could be for my family and my work family and take each day as it came and do the best that I could, in each day and each moment so yeah I mean obviously it continue. you know that's the big lesson right is that yes last year was crazy amounts of change all at one time but as you mentioned even this year there is continuous change it's the only constant truly
0: so I've been really just taking that to heart just like be here be here now. I think that's a good lesson. I mean it's it is you can't even plan right now. What is that great saying, you know, people plan and God laughs or something. It's it's something mm-hmm. like that. You have to just be mm-hmm. really flexible and that's been a good good learning. But I'll be excited to get back out and travel and see you and see lots of other people when we can all do it safely. So I want to transition now and talk about the mission critical work you're doing at Every Mother Counts and 2003 you became a mother and had a near fatal postpartum experience which inspired you to further investigate global maternal health issues. So tell us a little bit about your experience and what you found.
1: Yeah. I mean, my daughter is 17 and a half today. So um, it's been quite a while since this experience, but I, as you said, I experienced a postpartum complication. I hemorrhaged after her delivery, after a healthy pregnancy and a kind of a perfect delivery itself. Um, the unexpected happened and I uh, things got complicated and my birth team, which consisted of a doula, a midwife and a backing physician, they worked together as a team to manage the complication actively. And because of them and because of the quality of care I received that day, I felt very taken care of. I felt, you know, I was certainly scared and in pain, but I felt that whatever could be happening was happening. And I think it was really in the days afterwards, once I went home with my healthy baby, that I started to think about all of the mothers in the world who don't have access to a team like I had when I needed it most. And it really just, I, I thought, gosh, I got the care that I needed. And I'm so lucky to have lived in a city and had close access to a quality facility and choices in my birth options but I immediately went to think and maybe this is part of what happens when you become a mother I immediately went to thinking about other moms other moms to be other families going through this experience for the first time and not having the resources not having the information and not having the services that could make the difference in a complication like this. So I set out to do something about it. Uh, I didn't know what initially, but I continued to really think and, you know, remain open to opportunities that came my way. And then I continued my education. I went back to school to work on a master's in public health and made a documentary film called No Woman, No Cry, which really explored maternity care in four different countries, including the United States, looking at the barriers and challenges, but also the solutions the individuals out there that are making the difference for so many moms and families around the world. And that choice led to another choice and ultimately started Every Mother Counts back in 2010. And we went from being an awareness raising organization and mobilization kind of campaign to Being a grant giving organization, we've given twenty one million dollars so far in grants and support around the world to make sure that women have access to equitable and respectful maternity care.
0: But that's incredible because you took an experience. You went to school to study that and more. And I think you just made that all sound so easy. You did a documentary and you learned all about it. You started a nonprofit. Take us through that evolution. I think people would be interested to know. So not only did you do a documentary, but you No know, Women, No Cry, as you said, but it premiered at the 2010 Tribeca Film Festival. So talk a little bit, how, is, how did you pick that project first? How did you get that going? And what was it like? What did you learn when you were making that documentary?
1: You know, I'd always loved documentary films. I always thought that maybe one day I would learn how to make a documentary film, and that might be a chapter down the line. But then this experience happened to me. And because of the experience, you know, I started to look at the world through a mother's eyes. Honestly, the travel that I did after becoming a mom with some other NGOs working on a range of poverty alleviation kinds of programmatic work opened my eyes to the maternal health side of development. And it was after one of those early trips that I took with CARE, a large NGO that does global work, I went first to El Salvador with them, which is where my mom was born um, and grew up in her early years. And I was pregnant with my second child at the time. And that's where I think I had the aha moment. If I had um, given birth to my daughter in one of the communities I visited on that trip and had the complication I experienced, I know that I would not have survived Uh, We were hours away from a hospital and any level of care that would have been required with that complication. And I think, you know, it just suddenly dawned on me that, you know, by the luck and good fortune of being born where I was and having access to care that I had made the difference. And then I traveled with care again a few years later to Peru and was able to sort of see firsthand some programs who were making a huge difference. They had reduced maternal mortality in half in less than five years, which to this day is still almost, you know, it's so hard to do. And yet for that to be the first program that I was able to really understand and, and to witness and to understand, you know, just to see how it all worked out. And some of the tactics they use were just simply treating women, with respect and dignity, letting women, um, you know, having somebody speak the the indigenous languages that were theirs, right? So that they could understand what was happening to their bodies while delivering, Um, letting them have traditional birth options like giving birth vertically and in fully clothed in Peru, um, which was unique and interesting to to see. Seeing that for an illiterate population, that, um, you know, that to, to have, you know, complications and public health messages on the walls of the clinic so that people could really understand what signs to look for i mean they weren't expensive high-tech interventions they were simple low-cost very humanistic approaches to providing care to women and families and i think that trip is what really inspired me about the film i thought oh I now know what that first documentary film is gonna be. The women that I met in both El Salvador and in Peru just have stayed with me always. And um, there's nothing that does that quite like film in that sense that it really transports you. And I thought it's one thing for me to come home and tell my sisters and my family and my friends and my circle uh, about what I saw and about the women that I'd met, but to be able to create a film that allowed so many other people to be a part of that journey with me, to see for themselves, to hear women and speaking in their own languages, um, telling their stories. That just felt like the right thing to do. And so my husband is a filmmaker and I came home from that trip and I said to him one night, I think I know what I'm gonna make my documentary film about. And he said, you know, what is it? And I explained to him and he said, you've got to do it. Jump in, go for it. And so with that encouragement, I reached out to a friend of mine who was a neighbor and had produced documentary films. I told her sort of what my vision was and we jumped in and started to interview people. I I was also starting back um, at Columbia to work on my, my MPH and I had access to so many amazing people, people who were part of creating the MDGs and the SDGs now as they've morphed into the next um, series of goals. And because of that access and being in New York city, where everyone comes from all of the member States to the UN every year and having access to some of those conversations that really opened so many doors for me. And um, I jumped in, you know, I, I was a model and I didn't really have any traditional experience as a filmmaker, but I had resources and I had relationships and I had passion um, and I put all of those things together and was able to create something that today is as meaningful as it was when I made it. Um, we have updated the statistics in this film multiple times in some countries for the better and in countries like the United States, where we're actually going the wrong direction in terms of maternal health outcomes. We've updated those as well. And it remains this very critical piece of film that does bring faces to statistics. And that is so valuable, right? It's the qualitative data and the quantitative data that really makes a case for sustainable change um, and putting our efforts and energies into models of care and um that that will make the difference that will truly make a, a lasting difference and so i'm so proud of that film and honestly that was just really the beginning the the second beginning of of what this journey was going to be it
0: was i mean that's so powerful because i as you say putting a face to it a personal face to it makes a big difference and not only did you do the documentary but i think it was the same year you started your nonprofit right every mother counts so it- of went hand in hand. So what's it been like? I mean, you built that organization from the ground up. Talk about what that's been like.
1: Yeah. I mean, initially, I think when the film was finished and we were starting to, you know, we showed it at the Tribeca Film Festival initially, and then I was showing it at, at global conferences all over the world, because in 2010 was the first year that maternal health was really on the global agenda at the G8 summit in Canada that year. And it just, there was a whole new framework and approach to maternal health. Of course, it was the MDG that was lagging the most of all of the goals. And so the time for this conversation and to elevate the topic was just, it couldn't have been better. And so at first, you know, Every Mother Counts was the campaign to go along with the film to kind of just continue to educate people. I basically started a very basic website, which had resources in a lot of the partner organizations who were already committed to maternal health globally. And I basically was kind of, you know, taking the film around the world, talking to audiences of all kinds, and then, you know, giving them the sort of, and if you're interested in this, this, or this, this is where you go. And I found after about a year and a half of doing that, that audiences were hungry for something that wasn't out there already. Like there wasn't a way for everyday citizens to engage on maternal health in just a way of, I've given birth or I'm pregnant now, or I've had a member of my family have a complication or in some instances, I've lost a member of my family because of maternal mortality. And so it just became clear that there was a different kind of need and that we perhaps were the organization to start to fill that need. And I would say over time, what I've learned is through building really close, deep relationships with community-based organizations and leaders on the ground, as well as policymakers and lawmakers, you know, stakeholders at the sort of you know, uh, government level that we are filling a very vital gap, which is kind of connecting the dots between those various stakeholders and and participants in this issue, which is so important. And I didn't set out to do that per se, but I found early on by listening, by really listening, that that's what was needed. And I've tried to continue as a leader of a nonprofit, really tried to stay small, nimble, responsive, to, you know, not try to be something that we weren't, to try not to, you know, be something that already existed. Um, And I think because of that, we've really found a niche for ourselves. And over almost 11 years now, I feel that we are in such a very unique position to be able to really carry this work forward in a
0: meaningful way. Yeah, that's 11 years. It's incredible. So when you talked about the U.S. going backward, talk a little bit about what changes or improvements you have seen in maternal health care since since founding over the last 11 years. Gosh. Well, so today we
1: um, have grantee partners in about nine countries. And um, some of those countries, the original ones, when we became a grant making organization, were some of the countries that were featured in No One No Cry. Bangladesh being one of them, Tanzania being another, Guatemala, and then the U.S. And so just out of the group, I would say those are four good examples to show that there have been some significant strides. Bangladesh, for example, has had a 40% reduction in maternal mortality since we uh, were there filming in 2009. That's really significant, especially in a country that is so impoverished, that's had this influx of Rohingya refugees over the last few years in an an area of the country where we were already supporting work, which was training midwives, traditional midwives, um, to care or provide care and services to low-income women. But that's just one example. And Guatemala is another. It's a a country that has a very large indigenous population. It's one of the most violent countries for women in the world. And um, we have found that by educating uh, traditional midwives and also professional midwives, that that's sort of the best bang for the buck in terms of ongoing care and skills that you know, low-income women, indigenous women need um, and deserve. Um, These are, you know, uh, communities where, you know, hospitals aren't the first choice. Uh, They might not be within reach Either because of distance itself, or because they are marginalized to the point that they are not treated respectfully um, when they do seek care in those facilities, and so really trying to see the gaps, work towards filling those gaps, and educate you know the general public at the same time. Um, the U.S. is interesting because. When I became a mom in 2003, I learned that we were ranked 41st in the world, which was already quite shocking. But today the WHO says that the United States is ranked 55th, which means we've fallen farther and farther behind since I came into this work. And when people ask the next question, which is like, how is that possible in a country that spends more per capita on healthcare than in any other developed country in the world? Why is this happening? And who is this happening to? Well, we now know through a lot of evidence and a lot of testimonial and much more media coverage on the topic that um, African-American women are three times more likely than a Caucasian woman to die in pregnancy or childbirth. And a native woman is two times more likely to die. And when people then say, well, why is that? And how is that? When we look at the data and we look at the evidence, it doesn't matter whether you're a college educated woman of color or not. A college educated woman black woman has a greater chance of dying simply because she's black. Uh, And that's the piece that I think has been really illuminated in the past year through COVID and through the discourse around um, racial inequities and social justice and the lack thereof, that Black women and Black people generally are, are treated differently in our medical institutions. They are not welcomed. They are not listened to. We saw in the case of Serena Williams when she became a mom a few years back that even our most capable most famous, most outspoken, most, you know, invincible woman athlete was not listened to at first when she knew that there was a problem in her postpartum period after delivering her daughter by cesarean section. And had she not had that information about her own body and had the voice that she had, she wouldn't be here. And so to have her come out and speak out so bravely and so eloquently really helped to, you know, sort of take the veil off of the eyes of those who didn't see that there was truly a race dynamic at the source of this issue. Um, So now that the veil has been lifted, I think that a lot of the solutions have been around, you know, accepting that this is truly the reality for so many people and also understanding that education at so many levels is what's needed. Um, Our providers need to be trained well before residency about implicit bias um, and medical bias and they need to um, start to have care modeled for them that really shows compassionate, respectful care in the workplace and a team based approach. And then we do need to do more with elevating the work and the recognition of those working at the community level, which are you know truly meeting people and families where they are. Uh, they have the built in trust and guidance to be able to not only understand the needs of the people and populations they serve, but to be able to address um, the challenges and the concerns, whether it be housing insecurity, food insecurity. All all of these factors that play a role ultimately in our birth outcomes, you know, there's there's it's, it's a complex issue, but many of the solutions are quite obvious and quite simple. Um, but what we have to do is increase the political will and the societal you know prioritization of women
0: and families. Yeah and it is complex but you're right education plays such a role in that because if you have to be able to look after yourself. Unfortunately, in most of these things, and so if you have that education, you can at least advocate. So, what w- talk about some of the work you and Every Mother Counts are doing now, or what's your what are you planning for this year? Anything special coming up for Mother's Day? Yeah, wow. um, we're getting we're getting close to that.
1: Well, I would say so much of our work um, as we were you know coming into our 10th year last year i wouldn't say pivot because i know that's the word of the of the 2020 year i would say it was more a matter of focusing it was sort of recognizing that hey the conversation is very much focused on the populations that we are have already been so committed to so we are sort of recommitting ourselves for the next decade or however long it takes to really make sure that uh, pregnancy and childbirth is safe for every mother everywhere. And a lot of the work we've done through COVID is work that was needed before COVID and will be needed after COVID in with regards to um, having, you know, trustworthy information and resources um, within reach of the people who need it and who don't have that information and access otherwise. In looking at this year and, and looking forward, It's really trying to build upon some of the momentum made um, last year around um, helping to broaden the definition and educating the public about alternative safe options to get birth in. Women should have options. Midwives are a very safe, high quality level of care, which every other country in the world who does not have the dismal um, maternal mortality ratio that we do. um, The big difference in those countries is that midwifery is, is integrated into the health system. And you're seeing the benefits of that high quality care doula care being another piece, but both midwives and doulas are not reimbursed or compensated fairly for the work that they do. And so that's another piece of education, educating the public to know that these are safe birth options, but also helping to figure out some of the um, barriers that make it harder for um, these vocations to be practicing and to be um, protected in the work that they do. And, you know, when we look as we go forward, you know, we were able to, to double our grant giving last year, which was phenomenal. We were well poised to do that because of the great relationships we've made over time. I feel like each year we've incrementally been able to grow our grant giving. But at the end of 2020, Twenty, we were able to do something so exciting, which was um, we gave out almost $2 million in, in grant funding. And we're hoping this year to continue that growth to about $2.5 million of grant um, funding. And so that's really exciting. Um, again, it's adding more partners into our portfolio, but it's also deepening some of the commitments we've made around the world in COVID as well. We were able to deploy grants quicker than we would normally. No Knowing that those needs were, you know, the demand was so great that it had to happen and to be in the position to be able to do that um, was well, what would I would like to be able to sustain for as long as, as we're in this work and continued storytelling. You know, um, we told a lot of stories throughout um, the year of COVID where we were really highlighting these maternal health heroes who were doing everything they could to provide um, consistent, continuous care for moms and families. Um, even if it was through telemedicine or over the phone, that kind of support is just so important and technology is so wonderful but without being in the hands of people who um, have the skills and the understanding and that human touch you know it, it just can't go as far as it could otherwise and so really trying to um, connect those dots as best we can and um, set up our our community based partners with as many tools as they as they need to be able to provide the care that they do And Mother's Day, of course, is for a maternal health organization, it is always our biggest campaign time. However, we like to think about about Mother's Day as not being just a single day. Um, We really kick it off around International Women's Day every year. It's a campaign that starts to build and grow from then through the month of May. Um, This year, We have a lot of great and fun um, events planned around International Women's Day. And then um, we are launching a month long campaign, um, a global maternal health uh, sort of effort and challenge, um, which we launch on World Health Day, which is April 7th, and then it'll close up on June 2nd, which is Global Running Day. We do a lot of running and fitness activities um, at Every Mother Counts to sort of educate people about the barriers, the distance barriers, and the importance of wellness and healthy behavior and practices before, during, and after pregnancy. So we're really excited about all of that, and of course have some wonderful partnerships with product partners and corporations to um, continue to to amplify our message and, you know, create exciting new products and things that help to educate the public um, and also give people opportunities to engage in the conversation, um, support the work
0: that we do and become part of the solution. So exciting times coming up. And the need is so immediate, as you said. So, you know, no one will be surprised that when the pandemic hit, you jumped right into action. And so last year, you joined New York's Maternal Health Task Force, which is advocating for expectant mothers during COVID-19. So how has the pandemic impacted expectant mothers? What did you see and what, what have you been able to... To provide or do differently as part of the task force.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think like everyone in those first few days, almost exactly this week now, I just come back from India on the seventh of March last year, and we went into, um, you know, we went into lockdown almost immediately thereafter. But the first thing I started to see were these stories and headlines around people who were pregnant and terrified to go into the hospital to deliver. As well as hearing on the other side the providers who were terrified because they weren't receiving adequate PPE at the time, so that was the most glaring thing. And being that you know I was in New York, which at the time was the epicenter of the pandemic in the United States, um, we jumped in with what we could do on the local level. And the first being you know joining this task force, helping to uh, create the task force, um, but really with a with a sort of mandate to try to broaden the language around an alternative birth space that was a safe option for families in New York when the hospitals were so scary and so dangerous. Of course, we've made some serious advances and uh, the safety protocols are in so much better of a place today and there is adequate PPE. And of course the vaccine is now here and being implemented even towards pregnant people, which is great. But, you know, really just jumping in, getting, you know, stakeholders together and just focusing on the what could we do now was a bit like disaster relief efforts. The other thing that we were able to jump in to do and that we were able to share with the task force was guidelines and recommendations for policymakers in hospitals, but also um, at the state level and national level, just, you know, resources that were up to date um, so that, you know people understood you know what was what was the research what were the policies in hospitals you know just so people to help people navigate it during a very chaotic time we also were able to support our our partners on the front lines immediately by deploying the grants that i mentioned earlier so quickly but really asking them what were they dealing with what were they seeing if all that we could understand was our immediate area Um, of being New York, um, we really relied on our partners in Guatemala, in California, in Bangladesh in India to really tell us what was happening on the ground. And so to support them, that's one of our critical roles is really like getting behind those partners who we've identified really have models of care that are the most effective and that they're the best experts in their areas to understand what really is needed of them. And then for us to play that supportive role. Uh, Yeah. So the COVID really has helped us to have a conversation around um, a a subject and an issue that touches us all. But maybe until COVID happened, maybe people wouldn't be thinking about those things unless they read a story on the front page of the New York Times, you know, uh, or in the Washington Post that um, really brought to their attention and, and, and brought to them in their heart, what would it feel like to be going through this alone? Um, and we've been trying to express that for a long time. But I think there's nothing quite like real life testimony to make other people feel that empathy and compassion that that we hope to build upon and, and carry through for
0: for families for forever. Yeah. And even um, in addition to expectant moms, the pandemic has impacted all mothers. And, you know, we've seen all the data and working women across the board. It's, it's clear that most of the work falls upon uh, women. And so we've seen increasing numbers of women drop out of the workforce as they're forced to choose. And it's been hard to balance it all. Um, so what, what are some of your thoughts on that as well?
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, leading an organization, um, we are all women. Um, I would say half of our organization are moms. Many of those moms have very small people in their homes. So we've all really tried to uh, be there for each other to support one another. You know, we've all like all of us in the workplace, you know, we've all had to have family members walk in and out, have to jump off calls because their needs were more important than our immediate tasks in the moment. And I think all of us have really had to show up and accept who our peers are and our, our colleagues are as whole people um, in a way that I don't think we've done before. Um, and yet, as you say. Too many women have had to drop out because when it comes down to making a choice, yes, it's typically the mother's burden. I know a few exceptions to that rule, but you know, by and large, it's moms, even working moms. Um, we are the ones still. You know, my daughter is is in that process of looking at colleges, and so I have my full day of work and my normal mothering that I do. But on top of that, I'm trying to be an extra attentive support system for her as she goes through that process. And so, obviously, at every stage. Of a child's life, we are still needed and still um, expected to, you know, make it all happen and be there as resilient as we can be to make sure that the rest of the family can thrive. And so yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot that we've all gone through that I think we recognize in one another, right? It's like you don't, it's one of those things now that you don't even have to go into the details of what a day you've had we all kind of recognize just how challenging that's been. And I think that's brought us together in a very meaningful way. It's still, again, illuminating some challenges that we know existed before and that will continue to exist. But I feel there's a sense of camaraderie and collective sort of acknowledgement and strength about what needs to change. And I I feel optimistic that we we will make progress through this because of this.
0: I'm in the same place. I have to say the support, I think, is really important. One of the things I'm Really proud of so far is at City National. We haven't seen that trend of any of our women dropping out. And we've we've done everything we can to support them. But I think one of the things that really helped is we've got a really great, vibrant women's group that's that's had, I don't know, double, maybe more than double the amount of events because we're all virtual, to just talk about it and support one another. And how are you handling this? How are you handling that? I mean. You and I, I mean, I have a a, a college daughter home. Uh, she's doing virtual, but I don't have little kids. Um, so it's a very different, you know, different day. But I think supporting one another has made the biggest difference for for people. And you had to change and do some things differently, I think, and help one another figure out how to how to do that. And I think, I think it's been kind of fun. You know, we've met everybody's kids, cats, dogs, you know, Uh (laughs) we we were in a board meeting and a cat and one of my colleagues was giving a presentation and his cat just jumped right in front of the camera. And it was just, it was kind of a fun moment, you know?
1: Yeah, I know it really has. It has forced us to be creative um, and to, again, be in the moment. And, you know, when you can't hide what's happening in your life, then it does force you to maybe speak up a bit more, share um, what's really going on. And of course, once we know, we can be there more for each other. Um, so I think seeing that sort of a little bit more of a glimpse into all of our lives has, has has been a really good thing, really positive.
0: Yeah, I think it has been. And, you know, we do have, you know, when you think about the workplace, today. I'd love to get your take on this. There's more women founders and women in leadership positions than ever before, um, but we still have a long way to go um, to really reach a place where we all feel true equality. What's, what's your take on where we are currently in the progress that we've made? Anything that you think still needs to change how we get there.
1: Uh, So much needs to change. But I do think that the women in leadership positions does make a difference. Like it helps having someone like yourself who can then recognize like what would have been needed? What would you be looking for as a person earlier on in their career? What would you be looking for from leadership during times that are unusual and unprecedented? I think, you know, Policies tend to, when created or um, implemented by a woman, tend to be more thoughtful, tend to be more inclusive, um, and I've seen that, you know, in pretty much every country that I've spent time in. Um, when you see leadership. Again, at the government level, at the institutional level, um, at the community level, it's it's a very different experience, and yet we need to continue to model that because it can take generations to really see that. It's for you know men and women to grow up in circles where we're seeing, you know, equal representation, and we are seeing more diversity, Um, we need to see it to know that it's possible for ourselves. And so, you know, I, I always emphasize the fact that like modeling behavior is probably the most effective way to change behavior. And we all need it. We all need it. So I think that's gonna, it's gonna take time and it's gonna, we can't ever be complacent in it. Um, I think, you know, again, there's always been that conversation around, the conversations around women and empowerment that men have to be part of that conversation. And I'm a mom of a daughter and a son and I often am thinking about both genders, all genders, <laughs> we all need to have that conversation and we all have to be a part of that conversation. But I, I feel very hopeful with where my children are in terms of what they take in and what they notice. And it forces me to, you know, continue speaking up and sharing what what I've noticed that has changed so dramatically. I mean, my mom was a stay-at-home mom, which I fully respect. But because of that, I grew up thinking, I want something different. And, you know, and again, you know, it's just, it's just having, it's trying to set up a possible future where there's as much choice as possible always to be able to opt out or opt in, like just to have that sense of choice and um, the freedom to be able to make up your mind, change your mind. I think that's what we're working towards.
0: Yeah. Feel that you can do what you want to do. And I know just given everything you're doing, you're advocating for women is really important. You do it and everything you do, I think it's really important. And I know I know we both feel strongly about that. So what's, what's some advice you would give to everybody listening on how to be an advocate for women in the workplace, but really beyond? You know, I think we all need to
1: recognize that no matter what our circle is or, you know, whether you have a family yet or not, or whether you don't want a family or you do, I think it's recognizing that we all have a role to play and that we are a model for someone in our lives and that our behavior and our choices and our, our ability to use our voices and you know, open the door for a colleague or a friend or a family member to, you know, bring them into that conversation to encourage participation that we each have that power around us, right? It's all relative, but we all have a few people that we can influence. And I think when we walk through life knowing that, Knowing that what we say and what we do um, has an impact on other people, I think you start to behave slightly differently. You know, obviously, as moms, we do that for our families, but I think we can all sort of think of ourselves in that light in the workplace, on a Zoom call, interacting at the grocery store, we you know, with whomever we we interact with. So I, I would encourage people just to kind of take in that information of, you know, who in their world do they think they can have an impact on and, you know, start to have those conversations, ask people's opinions. You know, I find with a team full of um, largely much younger people than myself, I always want to hear what their opinions are. I want them to feel comfortable speaking up. Like we are a safe environment to do so. We are an organization that's committed to moms and families. So it's like, if we can't do it, it every mother counts, where can you do it? Um, but I think, um, you know, that's what it takes. It takes sort of seeing you, lifting you up uh, by inviting you to participate um, and then passing that kind of goodwill and
0: um, energy forward to the next person. Great advice. So March is Women's History Month and it's a time to celebrate inspiring women. I can say with certainty, you're an inspiration to so many, including me. So to close out our conversation, I'd love to hear who inspires you. Well, you
1: inspire me, first of all. We've known each other for some time and just watching you as you continue to take on more and more Whilst um, having a family, I admire and I um, appreciate you. But I really don't have to look very far. My mom inspires me. My sisters inspire me. um, My work colleagues every day inspire me. The grantee partners that we have and the strategic partners that we have. I mean, I'm constantly learning and constantly, you know, seeing either myself and another person or seeing new ways to do things, new ways to communicate, new ways to reach more people. And so, yeah, I, I never have to scratch my head and think like, hmm, who is it? I really it's like the person in front of you sometimes is the person that's the most inspiring person if you're present.
0: That's great. That's a great point. There's so many people who are out there doing inspiring things. So, Chrissy, thank you for being part of our podcast today, but also thank you for all that you're doing to focus people on such an important issue. It's so important. And the work you're doing is really making a difference. So thank you for that. Thank you, Kelly. It's been a pleasure speaking with you today. And thank you all for listening today. I hope you enjoyed all the stories you heard. I'm sure you did. And and please check out Every Mother Counts. You can all get involved. Thanks for listening. We hope you'll subscribe to Conversations so you'll never miss an episode. We have lots of great guests this season who will inform and inspire you.